0: We tell ourselves that time is the measure of all things. The problem is, we're not very good at sticking to it. Depending on your viewpoint, the 20th century didn't start until the death of Queen Victoria on January the 22nd, 1901. Or, if you were in Moscow, on March the 15th, 1917, when Victoria's distant relation, Tsar Nicholas II, abdicated in the wake of the First Bolshevik Revolution. For some of the people who lived through it, the 1960s began with the inauguration of John F. Kennedy on January the 20th, 1961. We observe today not a victory of party, but a celebration of freedom, symbolising an end as well as a beginning, signifying renewal as well as change. Or for those of us introduced to the decade through its music, it started on February the 9th, 1964, when The Beatles appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show. And you. You. But a much better argument would be that the tumultuous decade began to unfold on August the 28th, 1963, when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. uttered these visionary words. I have a dream that one day, this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So if that's when the 60s started, when might it have ended? April the 4th, 1968. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of non-violence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. August the ninth, nineteen sixty-nine. In a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religious rite, five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband, screen director Roman Polyansky. Or the 6th of December that same year. Easy Rider was released on July the 14th, 1969 but you could read it as a premature birth of the 1970s. The film seems to celebrate the spirit of the 60s, but while Billy the Kid and Captain America, played respectively by Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda, freewheel down the highways of five sunny states, it all ends with their deaths, gunned down by two men driving a pickup truck. We never know the killer's identities, they just appear on the road. But the way the film marked out the cultural divisions between arch-conservatives and radical liberals, it is clear that the killers represent the former. In other words, Richard Nixon's silent majority, whom the film suggests think they believe in life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, but in actual fact, are deeply afraid of what that freedom just might really mean. Of course, don't ever tell anybody that they're not free, because then they're going to get real busy killing and maiming to prove to you that they are. Oh yeah, they're going to talk to you and talk to you and talk to you about individual freedom. But they see a free individual, it's going to scare them. Films get made for all sorts of reasons. Ambition, vanity, a tax break, and sometimes even the noble hope that the finished product will serve society at large. Easy Rider, one of the landmark American films, was born out of insecurity. And that insecurity was the child of an enormous commercial success. Here we come, down the street. We get the funniest looks from everyone we meet. Hey, hey, with the monkeys. Bert Schneider began his career as a television producer, teaming up with aspiring filmmaker Bob Rafelson. Seeing the Beatles film A Hard Day's Night. They devised a comedy show about a pop band trying to break into the music industry. Neither Schneider nor Rafelson wanted to cast real musicians, instead, aiming for a quartet of carefully individuated personas, clearly modeled on the Fab 4. Calling the show after the fictitious band The Monkeys, it proved an instant hit, and the meta comedy then went Meta Media, with the Monkeys releasing their own records, scoring three number one hits in five months. <laughs> Don't be slow I oh, no, no, no oh, no, no, no Then I saw her face Now I'm a believer Now I heard a trace Of doubt in my mind However, within the entertainment world, the band were derisively referred to as the Prefab 4, which meant that despite now being enormously rich, Schneider and Rafelson lacked the one thing they now found they most desperately craved. Credibility. So they formed a film company, Raybert Productions, aimed at tapping into the burgeoning counterculture. Their first venture, Head, starred the Monkees, and was designed to send up both the TV show and the band. But earning back barely 2% of its $750,000 budget, Schneider and Rafelson were humiliated all over again. Yet they decided to go all in once more, this time backing an idea pitched to them by Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda, neither of whom had either written, produced, or directed a film before in their lives. Fading memories, egomania, and a lot of drugs means that who did what, where, and when have long been in dispute. Here are Hopper and Fonda offering their differing versions of their collaboration and how the mercurial Terry Southern got involved. Peter and I talked out a complete outline. Who's going to play this? What character we need? And Terry Southern had broken his hip. He said, well, what are you doing? And Bert Schneider said, like, please get him on board. I said, Terry, your fee is the budget of the movie. We had an outline, which we taped. He said, no, you don't understand, I'm your man. And then I wrote the screenplay. He was one of the writers of the film. I wrote every word of it. Although he had few credits to his CV, Terry Southern's reputation had been sealed when he helped Stanley Kubrick turn Peter George's deadly serious Cold War novel into a pitch black satire about nuclear Armageddon. Hello? Uh, hello Di- hello, Dimitri? Listen, I-, I can't hear too well. Do you suppose you could turn the music down just a little? Exactly what Southern wrote for Hopper and Fonda is at this stage a moot point. But at least one thing is certain. It was he who came up with the film's title. Originally called The Loners, which sounds like a pair of self-pitting malcontents, Southern came up with Easy Rider, which feels lyrical, even metaphysical. A question in your nerves is lit yet you know there is no answer fit to satisfy you not to quit to keep it in your mind and not forget that it is not he or she or them or it that you to. The summer of '69 was a remarkable time for the Western. The Wild Bunch, Midnight Cowboy and True Grit were released within six weeks of each other, all of them revising in their own way a genre that once seemed to faithfully tell America's tale. This is the West, sir. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. But where many Westerns were about cattle drives heading west through hostile Indian territory at the end of which the cowhands hoped lay a big payday. Easy Rider had two dropouts scoring a big drug deal and then riding back east through hostile redneck country to a brothel. Easy Rider is the western in reverse, upside down and reconstituted from the inside out. As such, it had every reason to fail. But from a budget of $365,000, it earned an astonishing $60 million worldwide. And as if that were not enough, it launched the career of Jack Nicholson. Nicholson was 31 when he was cast in the film, and by that stage, he had all but abandoned his ambition to be an actor. He had spent more than a decade on the periphery, doing low-budget exploitation pictures for Roger Corman. So to soothe his sense of failure, he had taken up writing. Get a lot written today? Yes. There are many extenuating circumstances for Easy Rider's phenomenon but it is impossible to ignore one of the big reasons. While not the first, Easy Rider certainly was one of the earliest films to fully realise the impact of a found soundtrack. Contemporary rock music was not just for creating publicity, but also creating a numinous bond between audience and film. Easy Rider is an important film, but by no means is it great. It has great moments in it, but mostly it comes within a hair's breadth of a tedious, incoherent mess. With no script at all and no sign of one forthcoming, Schneider and Rafelson decided to give Fonda and Hopper $40,000 to deliver a visual sample of what they wanted the film to be about. So in late February 1968, Fonda and Hopper went to New Orleans, to capture scenes at the Mardi Gras festival with three cinematographers filming on 16 mm the shoot which lasted all of five days was such a calamity that not only did the inexperienced crew abandon the production Fonda and Hopper were barely talking to one another yet when Schneider and Rafelson viewed the footage they doubled down and gave the remainder of the budget so Fonda and Hopper could finish the rest of the film Shooting rambled across the summer of 1968 with Hungarian-born cinematographer Lajos Kovács using zoom lenses to ingeniously convey the loose spontaneity of life on the road. But, once in post-production, the old calamities returned, with Hopper refusing, often violently, to edit the film down from his envisaged four and a half hour running time. A growing dependency on drugs only exacerbated his already brutally vicious temperament, He assaulted his wife, Brooke Hayward, breaking her nose, after which, fearing for her life, she filed for divorce. Ultimately, Hopper had to be lured out of the editing suite to allow consulting editor Henry Jaglum to come in and put discipline on what was, at best, an extremely loose story. Three things happen in Easy Rider. The duo score a big drug deal at the start, decide to go to Mardi Gras where they drop acid, And then they are murdered on the highway. And that is it. But, just like bicycle thieves, along the way, there are minute moments that accumulate to deliver a powerful thesis. Schneider and Rafelson knew the thesis was in there somewhere. They just needed someone to come in and weed out all the weed. Here is Jaglum recalling the events some 25 years later. So I went to a screening of Easy Rider. And... For reasons I still don't understand, I was the only one who wasn't stoned at that particular screening. Uh, So for me, it was a little boring. The others in the audience loved it because each ride went on, it seemed, for 20, 25 minutes, had two or three or four songs going on. I got a little restless because I wasn't high and I was working on real time. Um, Jack was in the next editing room, Jack Nicholson, with his editor. He didn't want to be accused of aggrandizing his part so he i was entirely working on his thing he actually took the movie from the front and i kind of took it from the back and we met somewhere in the middle the ultimate irony is that the very best sequence in the film originated in those shambolic days at mardi gras it's not just the way the images are cut together it also comes down to the way sound mixer leroy robbins layered in the music voices and auxiliary noises to augment the visuals that already depicted a disorientating and frightening acid trip. Let's face it, depicting a drug haze on film very rarely, if ever, works. But for me Easy Rider not only succeeds, it manages to do so by delivering one of the greatest montage sequences ever assembled. It is as if Sergei Eisenstein had picked up William Burroughs 1964 novel Nova Express in which the author devised the fold-in writing technique, and then the Russian filmmaker had applied it to his own silent montage theory, into which he then folded the new medium of sound. I've always been struck by the film's title, Easy Rider is singular, yet there are two protagonists. So to whom is the title referring? On the surface, it would appear to be Fonda's Wyatt, aka Captain America, since Hopper's Billy the Kid is always on edge. But no matter which of them is laid back or tightly wound, the real mystery is, who are these men? Wyatt and Billy are nothing more than ciphers. The film gives us no sense of where they came from, they just are. Yes, they do speak of where they are going, Mardi Gras and then Miami. But beyond that, they have no plans, which at the time suggested they were free men, beholden to no thing and no one other than their own spontaneous inclinations. But a crucial moment occurs during the trip to Mardi Gras. Dropping acid, the hallucinogen takes them down into the true underworld, the cemetery where they come face-to-face with their own mortality. You so much. Captain America sits on a statue within a large mausoleum. There, amid a cacophony of sounds, he weeps, in agony. He is grieving for his dead mother. Suddenly, the man has a past. Now in real life we know that Hopper bullied Fonda into doing the scene, pushing him to confront the memories of his mother who died by suicide in a sanatorium aged just 42. Fonda himself was barely 10. But within the framework of the film, and what it was attempting to say, it represents a lament, a keening. This is not a trip, but a funeral. Captain America is seated in the lap of the Statue of Liberty, mourning his country's death. As Nicholson's George Hansen had said, You know, this used to be a hell of a good country. And earlier, at the Commune, Lucas nameless hitchhiker had declared, The time's running out." And finally, the night before they were shot, Wyatt had confided to Billy, We blew it. A cultural phenomenon upon its release, Easy Rider now stands as the link between Dr. King's idealism that sparked the 60s and President Nixon's cynicism that polluted the 70s.